there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in breaking into the humanitarian world and you'd like to live overseas, then this is the episode for you because my next guest lives in Jordan and works for a global humanitarian organization that is trying to support refugees and internally displaced Syrians. But before I introduce you to Rachel Sider, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Rachel Sider, Policy and Advocacy Advisor for the Norwegian Refugee Council, also known as NRC. Rachel is based in Amman, Jordan, and is a member of the NRC's country management team and crisis management team, overseeing more than 900 staff across Syria and the region. She's also served as an expert resource on international humanitarian law and the impact of national legislation, interference of non-state actors, humanitarian access, and protection of civilians. Rachel also serves as the NRC's lead spokeswoman for print and broadcast media, having appeared over 40 times, including on CNN and the BBC, as well as in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Rachel joined the NRC in Israel in August 2016 as the Gaza Advocacy Coordinator. Rachel started her career in the humanitarian and nonprofit worlds. Prior to joining the NRC, Rachel worked for Oxfam Great Britain as a humanitarian policy advisor in northern Iraq. Rachel, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am so ready to go. Oh my God, you sound super caffeinated. How many cups have you had? Going on two and a half, so not too much <laughs> quite yet. Still early. Oh my God. I've had one regular cup that I make at home and then I met somebody for coffee this morning and had a couple of shots of espresso. So I am totally wired and ready to go, ready to jump into our 10 espresso shots. The first question of which, Rachel, is what entry-level jobs are available to young people who want to break into this field? So I would say there are three options. The first one is Peace Corps posting abroad, which is an easy entry point into getting some field experience. The second one is usually a desk officer position. So someone who's based in a headquarters of an international NGO that's working to advise on humanitarian programming. And the third one is some entry-level advocacy officer positions, which sometimes exist in the field to be able to support larger advocacy teams of the NRC or of other big international NGOs. 
Wonderful. What about a useful, hard, and soft skill that you look for in the young people that you hire at the NRC? There are two that are really important to me. The first is public speaking. So being able to speak with confidence and with impact. And the second is any form of qualitative or quantitative research experience and the ability to do that research in a field-based setting, often in a conflict zone. Okay. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Why are those two hard skills so important to you? Those are skills that have definitely helped me advance in the field and are things that help complement some of the day-to-day work I'm doing. So field-based research is really important in terms of being able to gather evidence based on our programming, based on the experiences of refugees and displaced people to then be able to inform the advocacy that we're doing. And if we don't have robust and strong research systems in place, it really undermines the effectiveness of our advocacy down the road. Also, it's important to have good public speaking skills because a lot of the advocacy is interfacing with decision makers and policymakers at different levels, whether that be in capital settings in different countries or with donors who play a large role in supporting a humanitarian response. And not being able to convey a message effectively is going to limit our ability to have impact for the people that we serve. A hundred percent. What about soft skills, Rachel? And these are usually more interpersonal skills. You did mention being able to be a strong communicator, but are Mm -hmm. there any other soft skills that you look for? I would say being very adaptable. So working in a humanitarian setting requires that you deal with unpredictability and complete uncertainty all the time. And it means that you don't often have the ability to plan long term, either a work plan or a research plan. And you have to really run with whatever's available in terms of resourcing and circumstances in the middle of a humanitarian emergency. So adaptability is really important. And the other one I would say is a patience, you know, the ability to work long hours across different cultural and language barriers and still be able to get the job done. And that requires a lot of patience and understanding a the way. Oh, that is fantastic. I'm so glad that you brought those up. Rachel, is someone's major a deciding factor to get into this profession? And I ask that knowing that you studied international studies, you got a BA, you didn't study international humanitarian law as an undergrad, you didn't study Mm -hmm. development, international development. So what is your sense as to whether or not it's important for someone to have an international background of any kind? Is it a deal breaker? It's definitely not a deal breaker. I would say the degree that I got and the focus that I had on both international studies and political science was wide enough in scope to give me plenty of options and definitely didn't rule out the paths that I've taken since then. I think I have colleagues that have studied anything from geography to anthropology to specific languages to having really narrow or more focused specializations. And it hasn't at all been limiting and their ability to work in the policy 
advocacy space. What I would say is that a lot of those limitations can be overcome through graduate study or through specific certificate programs where you focus maybe on international humanitarian law. That's what I've chosen to do through some specialized coursework with the Red Cross, for instance. So there are other ways of circumventing that issue. But at the end of the day, a lot of the hiring managers, they don't put too much of an emphasis on education and look much more at the field experience and the real life experiences that you've had to get you prepared for a position like this. Gotcha. You mentioned grad school degree. How important is it to have a graduate degree in order to succeed in your field? And if so, what do you think are the most useful ones to have? So I would say in my own personal experience, it hasn't yet been a limiting factor for me. I've been able to take on a number of jobs that are often maybe out of reach on paper that often require a postgraduate education. But because of the other experience I've had and the skills that I've developed, it hasn't been a deal breaker, so to speak. That being said, I do think at the end of the day, if you are competing against a number of candidates that do have a master's degree, it does become a lot more difficult. A lot of my colleagues have studied master's in public health, master's in public administration or public policy. Again, it really depends on whether you want to be focused specifically on the policy arena or want to be able to also operate more on the programmatic side. So delivering humanitarian programming in a specific area of focus. I have colleagues that have studied international development through master's programming, and that's given them a lot of options to be able to navigate both the policy advocacy world as well as the more general international development space. I'd like to pick up on something that you mentioned, Rachel. You said that it hadn't been a limiting factor for you yet because Mm -hmm. of the skills that you've developed. What have those skills been and how have you developed them? So the number one skill is probably writing persuasively and strong writing skills as well as strong communication skills. And those are not things that you necessarily have to pick up exclusively in a master's program. I think those two skills in particular, as well as an ability to understand how to deliver advocacy and engage with a whole different group of stakeholders has really come about through a number of different experiences from my past, starting with being on the speech and debate team in high school, then translating that into some leadership experience of volunteering with refugee programming in Vermont, to then an internship experience I had in Washington, D.C., where all of those dots were really connected and I could put my writing and communication skills to use in an ideal position for me, which was a member of a policy and advocacy team working with different interlocutors of the U.S. government. So it's really come about through a lot of different career experiences and exposure to different career paths along the way. But also, I think there is just an element of luck that comes in here, which is some of this is just really intuitive. And either you're good at it or you're not, and you get it right away. And it's really hard to teach that in the framework of a master's program, for instance. I'm so glad you brought that up because that is a perfect segue to the next espresso shot being what kind of life experiences do you think are most useful for someone starting out in this field? So you mentioned having been on the speech and debate team in high school, having done volunteer work 
in college. What kinds of out of the classroom experiences, Rachel, do you think our young listeners should be trying to get proactively to give them a leg up when they apply to a place like the NRC for an entry level position? I think the number one is study abroad experience. That's not exclusively about language study or learning in the classroom, but also allows for field-based research. I, for example, got a grant to do some senior thesis work along the border with Assyria in both Turkey and Jordan. So that allowed me to not only have experience living abroad and working abroad, but also practicing my language skills in a real-life setting and starting to understand how to conduct field-based research. The other element I think that's really important in terms of experience is having some internship experience that takes place in a traditional advocacy setting. So in a capital city where you're dealing with government stakeholders from various institutions and understanding both the power dynamics and how they work, but also how humanitarian policy is shaped and how it can be further influenced as an international NGO worker. So those two elements have been really crucial for me. And those were both experiences that I had in the sidelines of my traditional undergraduate experience. And they often were supported by alumni or grants from the university that helps make those experiences possible. Excellent. And we should also let our listeners know that you had a concentration or a minor in Spanish when you were an undergrad, and you also studied Arabic. Exactly. So I haven't actually used my Spanish in much of a professional setting. It was mostly useful in working with migrant labor populations in rural Vermont to work on the dairy farms as a volunteering experience. But I do have to say that having a proficiency in Arabic was one of the deal makers when it came to receiving a job offer for a position in Iraq a couple of years ago. So that really gave me a leg up among the rest of the competition that was vying for that role. Terrific. So Rachel, what is the best part for you of being a humanitarian? I think it's the fact that it is a career that combines social impact and my own personal commitment to humanity with some of the areas of study and of professional development that have been most intellectually stimulating for me, which is as a humanitarian, you're a problem solver, right? You're facing really uncertain circumstances and trying to help people in the middle of very traumatic crisis. And you have to come in there to help them and also to help find solutions on a policy level that are often very structural in nature and that often can translate to big gains for the population that's affected in the longer term. So I appreciate that it has the both the social impact element, but it also leads to some type of longer term structural change that allows me to help people find the right solutions for them, working with policymakers and other decision makers at different levels. So it sounds like it not only speaks to your heart and to your soul, but it's also something where you feel like you're really making a difference. Yes. Most of the time I do. I think it really depends on the crisis. But at the end of the day, 
it does speak to my heart. And it also speaks to the fact that at least the crises I've worked on, none of them have been climate induced or natural disasters. So they've all been man-made one way or the other. And that means that there are also man-made solutions Mm -hmm. to them. So being involved in trying to define what those are, it feels like it's having an impact. And I think over the long term, we have seen some bigger gains on some big issues. So that's definitely what excites me and gets me out of bed in the morning. But it also, I think, is a career that introduces you to people from all different backgrounds all over the world. My colleagues are not exclusively American. They come from over a dozen different countries and we work in places where there are really rich traditions and cultures that we really want to make sure are preserved. Yes. So you've already alluded to some of this, but Every job, no matter how fulfilling, no matter how motivating, and I have to say the humanitarian field in particular has a whole bunch of things that are really frustrating and also trying emotionally and psychologically. So what is the part of your current job, Rachel, as a policy and advocacy advisor that sucks the most? I would say it's the unpredictability of it all and the real politics that are involved. So when it comes to trying to shape policy on Syria, we're talking about big superpowers that are calling the shots in a war that none of us have any control over. And humanitarians and the civilians that are affected by the conflict are the most powerless at the end of the day. So it feels very difficult to have an impact or to, at a minimum, really minimize the impact of the conflict on everyday people whose lives have been completely uprooted by what is taking place. And it means that the advocacy work that we're trying to do is extremely reactive, right? It's responsive to last minute issues, emerging crises, unpredicted military offensives. And it's really difficult to have longer term policy change when you're constantly responding to these really sudden changes in the context that are affecting the broader policy environment. And it also means on a personal level that it's very difficult for me to plan longer than six months in advance. People that I work with, we very often have contracts that are between six months and two years in length. It's difficult to know where you might be based in the world at a given time because of the security situation or visa requirements or the politics around which nationalities are allowed to work where. So there are just a whole range of factors that are completely out of your control and that can change at any given moment. And it means that you're basically trying to do advocacy while walking on a collapsing bridge, so to speak. So it's not easy and it very often sucks. Yeah. You've just painted a phenomenal picture there. It's almost like a scene out of an Indiana Jones movie Mm. where you're trying to escape from the bad guys and you're running across that bridge. But obviously the impact here is so much greater. Rachel, what is the best career advice you've ever gotten? There are two pieces of advice that stick with me that I also try to relay to others who I supervise and work with. The first one is don't be afraid to take a more junior position because you don't know where that will take you. And it very often 
could launch you into a more senior role or a more interesting place faster. That was advice that I received when I started with NRC in a more junior coordinator role in East Jerusalem. And then it very quickly led me to the position I am in today. And I couldn't have predicted that that would happen, but it brought me into a reputable organization and allowed me to get experience working within a team, not necessarily being in charge of the team, that was really crucial to moving forward. The other piece of advice I would say is don't be afraid to turn something down and say no to a job offer if your personal circumstances can allow. What I found when I was about to graduate from college and I was frantically applying for a lot of jobs is that I was getting job offers, but deep down I knew that those were not positions that I really wanted and that I probably wouldn't have felt fulfilled in. So it's okay to say no to something if you know it's not right for you and it sometimes pays off to hold out for what's the right thing for you and you very often know it when you see it. At least that's the case I've had. What wonderful advice. So I've got two final espresso shots. What movies, if any, Rachel, or Amazon, Netflix, Hulu shows, or books, do you think accurately depict your profession? It's been difficult to find any media that really have covered the work that we do very well. There is a 2015 movie called A Perfect Day, which is about aid workers in the Balkans responding to a longstanding humanitarian crisis there. I'd say that's probably the closest description of what we do, and it's worth checking out. There are definitely a lot of shows that mischaracterize or inaccurately portray the general humanitarian situation. So I won't speak to those, but someone should be working on a movie that better captures the work that we're doing in Syria in particular. I want, I'm Googling while while I talk to you here, because do you remember that movie that, is it Rachel White's Wise? She's the Uh one who's married to the James Bond actor, to Uh Daniel Craig. And it's about her work as an aid worker who starts investigating the role of pharmaceutical companies in poisoning Hmm. people in an African country. And I'm trying to remember, it's called like something, a garden or a Rachel Wise. All right. You know what? I will look it up and see if I can find it either before the end of this episode or I will add it to show notes. Final espresso shot. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about the humanitarian profession? I would say, at least in the case of my job, a lot of the work that we're doing are still desk jobs at the end of the day. I think there's an understanding that we sometimes are running around in the field, in the bush, handing out food packets and tents 24-7. And we definitely have staff that do that. But those are positions that are mainly reserved for locals, for people who are from the area that have trust and acceptance in communities. And a lot of the work behind the scenes, a lot of the management functions are really a day job, a desk job that could take place really anywhere in the world. And yes, you could be based in a field location, but at the end of the day, it doesn't look too different from a job I would take necessarily in DC or in Chicago. So that's often a misconception. That being said, there's definitely a lot of travel and interesting meetings and opportunities to travel to the field to see the work that we're doing. But I spend a lot of time on email and on conference calls, just like anyone else. Wonderful. Thank you so much. 
while I was listening to your answer, I did find the movie. It's called The Constant Gardener. Ah, okay. I'll have to check it out. Okay. And it's based in Kenya. And she is an activist for social justice. It's a great movie. And I'd be curious to see what you think about it. So let me know. I Uh, will. Okay, Rachel. Speaking of Rachel's, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. The NRC is so fortunate to have such an articulate, passionate, and dedicated activist as you on their team, Rachel. I want to let our listeners know if they want to learn more about what you do as policy and advocacy advisor for the Norwegian Refugee Council, they should check out the show notes for this episode to see if Rachel's main Time for Coffee interview has already dropped. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.